I have an interesting series of books back at home. Um, some of you know I'm something of a, I don't know, I won't say a historian, that'd be a, a, a leap, but a, a fan of history, I suppose. Um, what If is the, the name of these, these books, um, several in the series. Um, the premise goes something like this. They're looking at these hinge points uh, in major events, major junctures of history, major uh, figures over the course of both American as well as world history, um, military history as, as well. These seemingly small uh, incidences, seemingly small personalities or events perhaps in the lives of big personalities, uh, and then asking the question, you know, at the time they seem small. It's only looking back you realize, oh my goodness, that's a, that's a hinge point in which so much turned. And, then, and looking at those things or those people and then asking the question, well, what if? What if that went a different way? What if it didn't turn out the, the, the way that it did? And then beginning to just kind of conjecture and play out some possibilities as to how uh, that might have gone. For instance, here are some of the ones that they take on. What if... Alexander had never become the great. What if, because there was a key battle in which he came within inches of, of being pinned to the ground by a spear, what if, in fact, he had been, you know, what if? What if Napoleon had never been so arrogant in terms of his ambitions? What if? Um... What about uh, some key incidences in the course of the American Revolution? I mean, the razor's edge at which certain things went the way that they did, or the American Civil War. Same thing. Uh, what about D-Day? A lot of different things just in play with, that per with the invasion of Normandy in June of 44. Or you think, of, those of you, you know, think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, the different ways that that could have gone. And... Uh, the ramifications that that had. What if? It's, it's a great you know, collection of essays, these books. The historians, every one of them, are well worth listening to and, and learning from. Got a lot of great insights. I would just say this, that on a few occasions they come to some very mistaken conclusions. And I say that because of this, because they look at all of that data and the wonder of how things went as they did, and they take a step back and this is what they begin to wax eloquently about. Chance, fate, and the meaninglessness of life. See, if, if they're right, there's a meaninglessness to your life. It's not just the big story that at that point you have to you know, say that about. It's all the little stories that make up the big stories that really don't have a point, if they're right, in the conclusions that they, they come to. You see, if there's no larger story, then you and I have no place in anything. Or, or if the, the overall narrative has no meaning or anything holding it together, then the subplots don't either. But the reality is, and the Bible is very clear on this point, the reality is that fate and chance, take them off the table, there's great meaning, oh, great meaning and wonder to our days. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, this is something of a, a follow-up to last week's uh, Easter Sunday message. 
Um, Luke 24 is the third of the four Gospels, the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 24 is the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke 24, uh, this is Luke's accounting of Easter Sunday and, and the resurrection and what was transpiring there, verses 1 through 12. Uh, Luke is telling us from his perspective what took place there in terms of, well, the empty tomb. Uh, then you pick up in verses uh, 13, verse 13 and read on through the verse 35. That's Luke account, Luke's account of Jesus' uh, appearance to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday. You pick up in verse 36, this is what we read last week, and read on through verse 43, and Jesus appears to a gathering, a sm probably small gathering of disciples there in the city of Jerusalem. That's what we looked at last week. Um, they're in establishing very clearly the physicality, it was one of the things we stressed last week, the physicality of his resurrection, the reality of, of it and all of those implications. Uh, but then we now picking up verse 44 and reading on through verse 49, he goes further, not just demonstrating his physicality, but speaking of the, some other significances, some other implications of the fact that he is risen. All right? So Luke 24, picking up in verse 44 and reading on through verse 49. Hear now God's word. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you. Thank you for working in Dr. Luke, uh, giving him these words, uh, giving him this inspired, authoritative, um, inerrant history of what was transpiring there uh, right then, uh, there upon your return, just as you had said you would, just as the prophets had said you would, um, be killed and risen on the third day. Easter was last Sunday, and its ramifications are very real. Uh, it ought to be Easter every day for us when we really understand uh, that the King is risen. And we ask that you would help us to understand something more of that even this morning, just in these few verses, what we can see here, the treasures that are here. Oh, would you help us to go deep within the mine shafts this morning and come back, come back up with just loads upon which to inquire more deeply into and live more deeply out of. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So some of you may know, uh, this weekend marked a, an anniversary, a wedding anniversary for Sarah and I, which has set upon me just kind of thinking a little bit. And I'm going to call you, this is what I'm going to, the title I'm going to put on this, The Sweet Consequences of Getting Married. Uh, the Sweet Consequences of Getting Married. And here are just a, a, a few. Not just you, that your tax status changes, but uh, 
also that you begin a, a lifelong and life-deep enmeshment with this, this other person. Uh, you begin this journey, something of, of an adventure, together. Uh, and a key in that, by the way, a little marital advice here for you, is together. Um, together, you are mounting the summits of, of happiness through life, but also together going through the valleys of shadow and struggle and sorrow. Uh, together, you are learning a whole lot, not just about marriage, but about one another. Things that you otherwise never would have learned about. And you're learning a lot about yourself. Maybe things that you would have just as soon not discovered about yourself. And in every passing year, marking that anniversary, as you look back, you begin to realize, you know what? I'm not the same person that I was last time. Praise God. Um, over the course of those, those years. It just sort of makes sense, doesn't it, though? I mean... Getting married, that's kind of a big deal. A, a wedding day is something of a significant event, at least it ought to be, um, in, in the life of, of an individual. Um, that there would be significant implications to the greatest event in the course of your life. Equally so, there are significant implications to the greatest event in the course of world history the death and resurrection of Jesus. The greatest event in the history of the world since the creation of the world. It make, just sort of stands to reason that there would be significant implications uh, flowing out of that. As some of you have heard me say, I think you may have said this last week, it's something like, this is the big rock. This is the big rock that dropped down into the water and all these ripples coming out uh, from that. Oh, that we would grow in our understanding of of what that would be. I've been struggling over the last couple of days to try and like put a clause on this, name this, these significant implications that, we've, that we ought to be wrestling with and thinking about, um, some of these, these um, paradigm-shifting realities that we should be living out of. Um, the best I've been able to come up with is something along these lines. Um, the clarifying necessities of the resurrection. The clarifying necessities of the resurrection. Um, that's what I think our text is pointing us towards here. Uh, that the, the reality of Christ's resurrection brings with it clarifying necessities. Three in particular in this morning's text, and you can see it there in, in your outline. The necessities, these three. The, first, the necessities of fulfillment. Secondly, the necessities of witness. And then thirdly, the necessities of the Spirit. I'm going to unpack that as we go, but you've, you've got these fulfillment and witness and spirit, these clarifying necessities that we see just, just like, again, the rock, the ripples, the resurrection reality. Let's look at these in turn. First, the necessity of fulfillment, um, verses 44 and through 46 again. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Let me just stop there. There is a Clearly, if you just think about what Jesus is saying in there and the implications of what he is saying there, in terms of necessity of fulfillment, there is a, there is a certainty 
of all of God's promises, of all of God's plans, of all of God's promises coming about. There's a certainty and a surety to that. Just with what we're just you know, partly of what you could say, we could learn just in that. As it was foretold, Jesus is saying, look, everything that, that you have seen over these last few days, and that's Easter Sunday, thinking back to you know, that and, and Good Friday and, and, and everything that preceded that, everything that you have seen was foretold. That's what he's, he's telling them. From the very start, this was foretold. Now keep your, your thumb there in, in Luke 24. Let's go all the way, well, almost, almost all the way to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I just want to read to you uh, one verse there in the book of Genesis. But, oh, is it an important one? This is in the context of the fall. And uh, after Adam and Eve, our first parents, um, succumbed to the deception of, of Satan and staked out their claim and rebelled against his, his authority and claim over, over us, uh, God then comes immediately and um, we have a series of curses that he pronounced first upon Satan and then the woman and upon the man. And this is in the context of the curse that he pronounces upon Satan, and in verse 15, it's, it's, it's not just a curse upon him, but it's a promise for us all. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a crushing blow. And you shall bruise his heel. A significant, but not crushing Um, this, my friends, is, is the promise of all the promises. This is the promise of a Redeemer. This is a promise of a Savior who is to come. Paul, the closing verses of Romans, even recognizes, harkens back to this. This is the, the one who has crushed the head of the enemy, of the snake. Jesus, our risen, ruling Savior. Everything else in the Bible ultimately is traced back to this promise. Everything. Everything else that, that you find. Um, and, and then you see that oh, and this promise unfolding over the course of the ages. All the prophecies that, you, that, that we read are, are driving in this direction. Um, all the the, the uh, priestly sacrifices, all, that whole system... The, the tabernacle and the temple and everything that was instituted, again, all of that instituted and, and exercised over the course of the ages. All of the uh, events, major events and, and personages, uh, individuals, are prefiguring and pointing and preparing the way for the person and work of Jesus. It's all, it all begins in Genesis 3 and drives forward from that point on. As it was foretold, as it was foretold, if God said it, He planned it, He purposed it, He promised it, it has to then come about. As it was foretold, as it then had to be. One theme that you see throughout history, all history is driving this direction, and it's a little wonder then that Jesus alludes to the fact here in twice, and this is the second time in Luke 24, Jesus alludes to the fact that it's not just all history, but all the Bible. All of it. All 66 books are ultimately about Him. Preparing the way for Him. 
You want to learn about Jesus? You can read about him anywhere in here. Anywhere in here. In some way, shape, or form. So it's one theme throughout driving in that direction. And, and, and with that, I would, I would add, a, there's a certainty of hope with this. If God promised, purposed, planned this, it surely then has to come a passage driving this direction. There's a certainty here to all of this because His wisdom is unmatched, His power is unchecked, and His love is unquenchable. It's going to happen. And it has, just as it was foretold. Such, such is the, the, the uh, necessity of fulfillment, the certainty that we have, the surety of we, that we have as his people for his plans and purposes to come about. I mean, I, I think in terms of just trying to capture something, what this looks like. And, and you know, you might think, well, can anything withstand this? Okay, let's go back. Think back to your time as a little child, or you know, maybe you're, you took your children, or maybe you've just seen a movie. I don't know. Little kids at the beach is just something about that. You feel like you've got to build the sandcastle. It's just like this this thing. I got That's what I do. I get down in the sand and I build. And and so you build your moats, and you build. Uh, the turrets, and you build the mighty walls, and you adorn them and fortify them with the shells that you find upon the beach. And what's one of the first lessons, the heartbreaking lessons that you learn as a child there, building this mighty, fortified, well-designed structure there in the sand, of sand, on the beach, the, the force of the tides. They're going to come in and nothing, your little castle, it doesn't matter how long you've spent building your little castle of sand, it is not going to withstand the power and the effect of the water moving in the tides. Same here. There's nothing. Everything else is sand. Everything else is a sand castle before the ocean, the power of God's plans and purposes. There is a certainty to his purposes the goodness of his purposes in the lives of his children, which means then, this is where I want you to, we need to think about, what, how do we put feet on this? What does this mean for me this afternoon and tomorrow morning and, and everything else? It means then, if you are a follower of Jesus, whatever, I, this much you can know, that in the hardest of circumstances, in the most heartbreaking scenarios of evil and injustice in your life, He will somehow bring it about for good. He can and He will. We know that. We have the certainty of it because of His promise to us accordingly. And the evidence and the surety and certainty established with this with Easter. Jesus' death and resurrection. The tomb is empty. There's your proof. I can't tell you how. I can't tell you when. I can't tell you why. But we know this. God does bring about 
His good purposes in the lives of His children. And that's not an if, but a when and a how. It's the certainty to His purposes for us. The necessity of fulfillment. We see it coming out here in this text. Which then takes us to the next thing. Not just the necessity of fulfillment, but the necessity of, of witness. And what I mean by that is there's an, inevit an inevitable bleh, an inevitability. There you go, I got it. An inevitability to this message going forward. This too is part of something that is to be fulfilled. Picking up where we left off in Luke 24, uh, verse 46 again. And this, again, this is part of what was foretold. This is part of, of, of the prophetic uh, proclamations from ages before. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now that should there, please understand, that's not like, you know, if things go right, if things go as they are supposed to. No, this is a a declaration of how it's going to be. This message, this word, this news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is going forward. Period. Just as surely as His good purposes will come to pass, this news will go forward. So that's the sense of that should-haveness there. As it was foretold. Uh, what Jesus is saying, what you are hearing what you are hearing from my lips right now, this was foretold ages before in the prophets uh, of old. From the very start. Now, I took you to Genesis 3 a minute ago. We're going to go back to Genesis again, but not all the way to 3. We're just going to go to 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is uh, maybe a, a text that's familiar to some of you. It certainly speaks of a man that may be familiar to you. He's referred to here as Abram. We know him as Abraham. This is the call of Abram. Later his name was changed. But here, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I get this. This is speaking, it's all in the context of the inevitability of this witness, of it going forward. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham had been blessed by God's grace in order to be a blessing for his glory. Abraham understood, and I didn't get it just right by any stretch. But from the very beginning, this was not just about good old Abe and his descendants. This is about him, someone, something and someone to come through him and his descendants for the sake of the whole world. For all nations. For all peoples and all nations. There is, an, there is an outward focus from the very beginning in the Bible. It's not just a New Testament thing. You see this outward focus and momentum and intention from the very beginning in the Scriptures working itself out very, very clearly. Uh, Luke read earlier from Psalm 96 in our call to worship. Let's go back there. Psalm 96, it's, it's interesting to see this. You see this all through the prophets. The prophets speak of the nations coming to worship the true and living God. That's what they are foreseeing and foretelling. It's what Israel was to be about living it out and, and living this, 
at going forth with this, this message. In the Psalms, it's interesting, there's a cluster of five right here, 95 through 100. You see this impulse there, just in verses 1 through 6, what we read earlier. Mentions of the earth and the, the nations and all the peoples and this gathering, this calling, this invitation. Look at what you see in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord of families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth, all peoples. All peoples. Come, come to the One who has made you as it was foretold, as it then would be and must be. And must be. And how could it not be? How could it not be? As this message takes root, as it has this, begins to have this transformative effect upon our lives, it works a deep change within. Something happens. And we change. And to the degree that we understand it, how then can we not then speak and live lives that then get the world's attention? Uh, Matthew, you know, some of you have been a, been a, here any time here lately, you know that we've been in a long series of the book of Matthew. Matthew and the Beatitudes, uh, in ch Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, Jesus is describing there uh, the marks of the citizens of the kingdom, or you could put it this way, signs of gospel transformation going on in the life of a person. How does he follow that up? What's the sequel, if you will, that comes on the heels of the Beatitudes? These words, picking up in uh, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, as you live out these beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. Keep going. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying here, look, through your words and your works, through your lips and your lives, as the gospel is taking root, you cannot help but revel increasingly in the freedom and forgiveness that you have in Jesus. And you become the proclaimers that he speaks of in Luke 24 and the witnesses of his death and resurrection. It, if you will, it cannot be helped. It cannot be Help. There is a necessity to witness, an inevitability to witness. I mentioned, you know, getting married. Well, first I mentioned anniversaries, right? We began, and then getting married. How does that begin, right? Well, you get engaged. And what do engaged couples do? You know, when they, you know, the the, the guy proposes and the girl says yes, you can't shut them up. They won't stop talking. That, that's right. It, that's the way it ought to be. You know, hey, we're getting married, and then they make calls and they send out announcements and. Save the date. We're getting married, right? You can't contain the message. You can't, nor should you. You can't. The, 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 his, my point being, God's purposes and plans are unstoppable. This news, rightly understood and embraced, is is uncontainable, unrestrainable. 
Now, I want to be very careful here in what I'm about to say in terms of application. My intent is not to guilt or shame anyone here. That said, there are times we do have to ask ourselves, to what degree do I really believe this? I understand, oh, I understand, that there are times in life of stressors and seasons where this is not quite the first thing on your radar, the necessity of witness. I understand. So does the Lord. That said, there are times we have to ask ourselves, have I lost my first love? Have I lost my first love? We all do. That flame waxes and wanes from time to time. What's the solution? Just let the preacher guilt and shame me? Is that no? Oh, no. That won't do you any good at all. The solution to going, is, is, it's a heart issue, right? And so you've got to get down there into the heart. The solution is just to go back to the message. The message that's supposed to be upon our lips that we're proclaiming and, being, and, and testifying and witnessing to. The wonder of His death on our behalf and His rising three days later. Just letting... I, yeah, right. I just said just. Just letting the wonder of that settle in. Settle in and do its work. A new and a fresh. So that those coals start to burn hot again. And therein, lending itself towards the warmth in a cold, cold world. Oh, we need that. I need that. We need that. It's the reality, resurrection realities, and therein, the inevitability of witness. But coupled right on that is one more thing. One more necessity. You could even say maybe another inevitability, but I'll say the necessity of the Spirit. The absolute, utter, complete, thoroughgoing uh, necessity of the Spirit, our dependency upon the Spirit, and you see that in this text as well. Picking up where we left off in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Again, Jesus is telling you, us, them, what, what is coming, not, not just what has happened, what you've seen, what you're hearing, but what is coming at this point is just as it has been foretold. In the prophets of old, long ago, just for time's sake, I'm not going to go there, but Ezekiel 36, the prophet Ezekiel speaks to this. I will take you to Joel. Um, the book of Joel, uh, the apostle Peter uh, quotes from this passage, Joel chapter 2. Um, 
in Acts 2, we have this quotation there in his, uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon at the occasion of the coming, the long-awaited coming of the Spirit. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterward. This is centuries before you understand. Joel is saying this. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And Jesus, in more recent days, had spoken of this as well. If you want to turn with me to the Gospel of John, uh, there are several places to, to look here. I'm just going to read in, in one spot, John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. Now, just as a side note, he, he's, what he's saying is, this is what I have been to you. And one is coming who is going to take my place and fulfill that role in an even increasing capacity, if you will. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So, as it was foretold, this is exactly what is coming to pass. This is what would, would be coming in just a, a few weeks from, from the moment in when Jesus is actually saying these words. As it was foretold, therein it would have to be, and it would have to be in, in two senses. One, simply because God is faithful and going to be faithful to His promises. He has, he has purposed this. He has planned this. He has promised it. Therein it's going to happen. But there's another reason. And that is, in order that this message would go forward, this has to happen. This has to happen in order for there to be any power to testimony and witness and proclaiming the necessity of the Spirit, our dependency upon the Spirit. There's another necessity, the necessity of His work, even in the life of Jesus. Go back and read through the Gospels. It was the Spirit at work in His very conception. It was the Spirit at work at every stage of His earthly ministry. Oh my goodness, how much more so if, if Jesus Himself, the incarnate Son of God, is dependent upon the work of the Spirit in His life and ministry, how much more so for His disciples, for us, our complete, utter dependency upon Him in all that we are and do. And so because of that necessity of His work, Jesus then speaks of to these men right, and women right there in that, in that time, the necessity of their staying put. Don't go anywhere. Don't try this at home, if you will. Don't do anything. The necessity of witness is real, but don't try this. Wait. Wait to the coming of the Spirit, Pentecost. Now He's come. So we have no more, there's no more waiting to be done. Um, but Jesus is in essence saying to them, your meager resources, what you have to bring to the table ain't nowhere near enough compared to what it's going to take. And, and when you look at the great mission and the great task in, in, in front of us, the necessity of the Spirit, our dependency upon Him. You think of all the images in the Bible that speak to this very thing. The sheep looking to the shepherd. There you go. Children, 
looking to the parents. It's a repeated image in the scriptures. John 14, the uh, image of the branches and the vine. All of that. All of that. Speaking to the sense of dependency. I'll read you this, this quote here, the bottom of your quotes and notes by B.B. Uh, Warfield. He was a great uh, teacher, writer, theologian um, back in uh, Princeton Seminary's glory days in the 19th and early 20th century. This is a quote from an address that he made to some incoming students there at Princeton. Uh, he's speaking here to, to, a, to a twofold greatness, if you will. One is the, the greatness of the task, and the other is the greatness of the supply for the task. Okay? Keep always before your mind the greatness of your calling, that is to say, these two things, the immensity of the task before you, and the infinitude of the resources at your disposal. I think it has not been idly said that if we face the tremendous difficulty of the work before us, it will certainly throw us back upon our knees. And if we worthily gauge the power of the gospel committed to us, that will certainly keep us on our knees. You see, the greatness of the task and the greatness of the supply. Now, by the way, I would argue what Warfield's talking about there applies to any calling that we have in life. Anything. Marriage. Parenting. Uh, whatever your calling and station is in, in your employment, or, or whether you're actively uh, employed or retired, or whatever your calling and station in life, what he's talking about here in terms of you know, what it takes to be faithful, we don't have enough to bring to the table, and but he, of course, does. But I want to draw special attention towards you know, what we're talking about here in, in Luke 24, the specific calling to go forth with this message testifying proclaimers of the gospel. We are absolutely, completely, utterly, thoroughgoingly dependent upon the Spirit for anything and everything. Just simply having a heart for people. Just so that I would care. Then, open opportunities, windows, doors to walk through. Having an ear that would listen and talk a whole lot less than I am prone to do. And I could go on and on and on and on of all the different components in this. And every one of them is completely dependent upon God's Holy Spirit at work. The reality of the resurrection points us towards our dependency upon the Spirit. I began with this, the, the larger story. Is there a larger story? Or is it all just fate, luck, chance? Is this just a meaningless story that we are a part of and, you know, just... No. There's another related question to that, and that, that is, are things actually as out of control as they feel and seem? Here's an image. Those of you who have ever attempted to uh, do driver's edge with your teenage child, and you know, you know I'm, go I'm going with this, you've got the, 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 the heart palpitations, and I'm talking about the passenger, not the driver. The, the heart palpitations, the feet digging down into the floorboard, the, the, the hands and the death grip upon the armrests, Oh, and then this calming but deluded voice coming from the driver, Ease up, Mom. It's okay. 
Dad, I got this. Just relax. <laughs> and and, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage, not just for said child, but for said parent, if you can survive it. And, and I would say it's just a, you know, a little word of advice. It's, it's, therein it's not surprising that it's so good sometimes for said parent to send said child to another driver's instructor who's a professional who has a second brake on their side of the car. When things are out of control, no, qualify. When things seem out of control, when things feel out of control, that has a way of bringing things out of you that you didn't know were there. That has a way of exposing you and things to you that you didn't know were there. Oh, the, the fits of anxiety. The fire of anger that can come up when things feel out of control. So here's the question. Are things actually out of control? Jesus' answer to us will be, well, yeah, out of yours, but not out of mine. Not out of mine. The certainty of His plans being fulfilled, the inevitability of this message going forth, and our utter dependence upon the Spirit, all these clarifying necessities, speak to all these frailties, all these failures, all our anxieties, all our worries, enabling our pulse to slow down just maybe a little bit, us to take pause, and maybe not be so quick to reach out and grab that metaphorical wheel. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us to be resurrection people and that's been the case from the very beginning after that first Easter morning. What those people saw had an impact upon them. They had a, a new hope and a new resolve, a willingness to suffer and persevere, to give of themselves, to forgive and to love as they'd never forgiven and loved before. It ought not to be so different for us. We can still see that the tomb is empty. Easter is still true. We pray that you would make these things increasingly so for us. Help us to grapple even more this week with the certainty of your, of your purposes. And may we be emboldened by that. An inevitability to witness that you would give us and instill in us a readiness a readiness to speak and live in this way, and a dependency in all of that, a dependency in all of that, a waiting and a patience and a humility about us upon your Spirit. Jesus, would you please make us what we are? Resurrection people, make us what we are. More than what we say, make us what we are. In your name we pray. Amen.